Real Crime presents The True Cabin in the Woods The foothills of the Sierra Nevada are a four-hour drive northeast of San Francisco. Yet such is the contrast between metropolis and pastoral idol, it could be a million miles away. The ancient land is almost impossibly scenic, a hiker's dream landscape. Trails pass through sun-dappled pine forests, verdant valleys and lush meadows. Undulating hills clash with rougher-shaped jagged peaks. Inviting rivers and waterways run with an abundance of trout. The national parks draw holidaymakers and recreational sports enthusiasts like moths to flame. The region is also home to one of the world's largest specimens of tree, the mighty sequoia. Locals smilingly refer to the foothills as God's own country. The place is some kind of paradise, certainly. But the picture postcard vistas belie a sickening trauma just beneath the surface of this heavenly part of California. One that has refused to go away 36 years on. Plumas County and the town of Quincy never felt the same after the triple homicide and kidnapping in cabin 28 at the Keddie Resort on 11th April 1981. In the decades since, residents have described feeling haunted by what happened to Glenna Sharp, 36, John Sharp, 15, Tina Sharp, 12, and Dana Wingate, 17. It wasn't just the shock of murder in a tranquil American town, but the ferocious brutality and the mutilated state of their bodies. This was more than killing. Welcome to the Real Crime Podcast. This one is on the Keddie Murders, otherwise known as Cabin in the Woods. And a particularly spooky one, isn't it, Tania? It really is, yeah. We did this back in issue seven, and it's probably one of the most memorable ones I think we've ever done. Mm. And the weird, weird thing is, it's a pretty big case. It's pretty well known in, in the US, but in the UK, not so much. No, I hadn't heard of this one really until we had featured it. OK, well, let's hear some more about it then. As a resort... Keddy rented out 33 cabins, or offered single rooms in the resort lodge. The Keddy Lodge restaurant was known in Northern California for its fine locally sourced barbecue cuisine and wines, today renowned around the world. Such was its reputation as a fine eatery, folk would readily drive in from afar as San Fran and Sacramento. By the late 1970s and into the early 1980s, however, the resort had fallen onto hard times. Owner Gary Molath began renting out the cabins to low-income families, and while by no means a disastrous policy, it is said small-time criminality followed. The distribution and sale of marijuana, in particular, was prevalent. In November 1980, a recently single mother, Glenna Sharp, arrived in town with her brood and moved into cabin 28. Her children ranged in age, John, Sheila and Tina were teenagers or thereabouts. Ricky and Greg were aged 10 and 5. After the murders took place, residents gossiped about Glenna, who was known to all by her middle name, Sue. 
The woman was deemed a bit of a loner. It is said she let her kids run wild, and townsfolk postulated that a lack of parental skills led the family on the road to ruin. To this day, many in the town feel the murders were related to some sort of drug deal gone very wrong. Living close by to the Sharp family in cabin 26 was chef and occasional drug dealer Martin Smart, his wife Marilyn and their children. One of them, Marty's young stepson Justin, would be present in cabin 28 at the time of the killings and his confused witness statements led many to believe he saw something important. As the sole parent in a new neighbourhood, Glenna had attracted the attention of several men in the area. One of these men was John Bobady, a decidedly shady fellow who would later become a prime suspect in the slayings. Glenna's relationships at the resort prior to her death are not well documented, save for a gentleman known as Darrell, who left a week before the murders. Witnesses attest to a blazing row between the pair, with plenty of cussing, but the guy was tracked down by investigators in neighbouring Butt County, and his alibi and whereabouts checked out. He was not the man responsible for the massacre in Cabin 28. If the Sharps were far from a model of family unity, it did not make them bad people. They were a working-class, single-parent clan experiencing hard times. For a mother to lose her grip on the situation is not uncommon, but neither is it a particular source of shame. Kids, after all, are prone to rebelling against mum and dad as part of their formative experiences. As many attested, Glenna Sharp loved her kids, and they did not lack that vital emotional nourishment. The FBI's Behavioural Sciences Unit, however, declared the victims as high-risk individuals. This belief stemmed from associations with crooks. John Sharp was friends with Dana Wingate, a kid with a troubled home life and was known to the local fuzz due to various criminal activities. OK, so we know what life was like in Cabin 28. Let's take a look at Cabin 26 just across the way, because this is where Martin Marty Smart lived with his wife Marilyn and her kids. Bad next-door next neighbours? Bad neighbours from hell. Okay. Yeah, neighbours from hell. Well, he was kind of a small-time drug dealer in the area. He'd been to Vietnam previously, and he reckoned when he came back that the war had left him with psychological scars. He, he reckoned? He reckoned, but actually he wasn't a soldier, he was a cook, and chances are he was more into the drugs that were available than the fighting. Okay. So he came back a bit of a loose cannon from Vietnam and he was receiving counselling for some anger issues that he'd brought back with him. And his wife, she was supporting him through this. Mm -hmm. But So he was over in Nevada getting counselling. Okay, so he, he, at, at this point, he, he, he fits in with the profile of a, a typical town member because the, because the town had taken the nosedive in recent years and it was attracting unsavoury types. Yeah, it was a less desirable area of the town back, mm -hmm. in, back in 1981. All right. So at this time, he was at a hospital in Nevada, and this is where he met John Bobady. Bobady? Bobady. Is that how you pronounce it, Tania? I'm going to go with Bobady. Okay. Well, Should we, we'll, we we'll just call, call him Bo? Bo. Yeah. Bo. Okay. So he met Bo while he was receiving counselling um, in Nevada. He was another less desirable character, and he came into the story about a month before the murders. 
they met while they were both in the hospital. Right. This so, th- th- this is sounds like a, a a match made in hell. Oh, it was. It was. They both had a propensity for crime, and this is kind of what I think attracted them to each other. They were both bad seeds, mm-hmm. bad eggs, bad all round. Marty was a small-time drug dealer. He had no criminal charges to speak of, but John's rap sheet was a bit longer. He had alleged links to the mafia. He had charges against him for bank robbery and breaking and entering. You know, he he was kind of a criminal mastermind compared to Marty. And Bo moved in with Marty. Yeah, they became they became best buds and they moved they both moved in to cabin 26 after they'd come out of hospital. And Marilyn wasn't too happy about that, no. but not wanting to anger her husband, she kind of just sat back and let it happen. And so this is Two cabins down, the second cabin down from cabin 28, there are some fairly serious, dodgy people living there. Yeah. That's interesting. As deadly events conspired against the unknowing Sharps, the night began so ordinarily as to render what happened not only a tragedy beyond words, but horrendously perverse. How on earth could a family be murdered so viciously and with neighbours oblivious to what had occurred? Some of the cabins were mere feet apart. It is but one sorry element of the Keddie murders which defies belief and comprehension. Sheila had arranged a sleepover at the Seabolts next door. Glenna was at home with Greg, Rick, Tina and their friend Justin came over to spend the night. They played and watched television until they went off to sleep between 8pm and 10pm. When they awoke the next morning to see Sheila ordering them to follow her out of the bedroom window, their lives would change forever. Justin told the police Tina was missing. How could he have known, if he had slept right through? He later told a police officer during an interview about a dream he had had, where Tina had fallen overboard. Prior to getting their heads down for the night, the kids had watched the television series The Love Boat. Was Justin mixing up dream with reality? Or was it a nightmare cruelly jumbled up in his head as having significance to the case? The problem with Justin's statements to the authorities were that they kept changing. And he was a kid. Two particular narrative strands may have led directly to the murders. Firstly, John Sharp and his friend Dana Wingate had been partying with acquaintances and friends and hitchhiked both to and from the party at Oakland Camp. This was in direct defiance of a promise Wingate had made to his foster parents. Had they met their opportunistic murderer or murderers and bummed a ride with them? Secondly, Marty Smart, John Bobady and Marilyn Smart set off for a night out at the back door bar their local watering hole, Marty insisting on Marilyn inviting Glenna, so that his buddy John had some female company. Bobady had taken a shine to Glenna, but she didn't want to go and told Marilyn so. Later on, though Marilyn is a somewhat unreliable witness, she told the police the rejection left Marty and John stewing and in a grumpy mood. But would such a slight kick off a mass killing? Between 10pm and the following early hours of 12th April, the killer or killers entered cabin 28, tied up Glenna, Johnny and Dana with duct tape and electrical cord, 
stabbed and beat them to death with a knife and claw hammer. Sue had been gagged with a blue bandana and her panties. They were embedded deep within her mouth and throat. The killer, or killers, tied her up with two types of electrical cord, one coloured brown and the other black. White adhesive tape had also been used to bind her hands and ankles. The subsequent autopsy report and photographs noted the marked tightness of the ligatures. She suffered multiple bruises and lacerations to the face, stab wounds to the throat, her larynx was severed, and chest area, and her teeth were fractured. Her lounging dress was saturated with blood. Her body was next to Dana Wingate's, directly in front of the sofa. John was found closest to the front door, his hands and feet tied with the same kinds of duct tape and electrical cord. A bent steak knife was found very close to his body. The head and face were severely beaten. The brain had swelled from the trauma of the blows. He was stabbed in the throat. The right carotid artery, vein and larynx were cut. And his chest also received puncture wounds from a knife. The right orbital bone was fractured. Dana's murder differed on several fronts. He was not stabbed, but died from asphyxia brought on by strangulation. As with the others, his teeth were fractured and there was swelling of the brain from repeated blows to the head. When his body was discovered, his head was placed on a sofa cushion and his arms and legs were not tied up like the others. Dana had an electrical cord and white adhesive tape on left arm and the left ankle of his hiking boots, but they were not connected with the right arm or leg. This is a particularly um, horrible crime scene, but when the FBI got there, they obviously they've, they've seen a lot of these things before and they were able to see past all the gore to see some like really telling pieces of evidence that are uh, characteristic of the Keddy Mothers. For example, Sue had been covered up by a blanket. And this is a very a, a deliberate act by the killer, presumably, that they were covering up, right, either out of some kind of bizarre sentiment, almost as if um, they, they feel some remorse for killing her. Either that or they were trying to hide her from someone yeah i mean that's potentially what happened the profilers looked at the scene and this is the great johnny douglas the great johnny douglas yeah and they had a lot of theories about what had gone on like you said but what they also suspected was maybe tina had covered her mother really yeah so she had come in and found them before um before the police had come to the scene well tina was missing at this stage so she was she had vanished out of thin air okay. and they suspected because to cover somebody after you've stabbed and battered them beyond recognition, that's almost a different side of the killer. So they thought maybe it had been somebody who had, had actually cared about Sue. So at this point, it sounds possibly like a, a real crime of passion. Yeah, it was a real head scratcher because they just couldn't figure out why the different styles of killing, so the anger and the rage, but also the guilt and remorse. It just didn't fit one particular type of person. There were a few witnesses to this crime. There had been some who'd seen what they thought were clues. So, for example, at around half 11, 
a resident nearby had noticed that the porch light was off, which he found strange because, according to him, that light was always on. Okay. So he was one witness. Another witness was um, the couple across the way in cabin 16. They had woken up after one o'clock, after one in the morning, and they reckon that they heard muffled screams. Cabin 16 sounds like it could be quite far away. Yeah, a little way off. Yeah, okay. Um, but also, an employee from the back door bar, which was quite close by, at around 2.20, she reckoned she had heard a car door shut and she thought she'd heard a male and a female voice close to where the murders were taking place at the time. Okay, so, I mean, that would put it in the right ballpark yeah, that gives us an idea of what was going on because police couldn't quite determine whether this had happened on April 11th in the evening or April 12th in the early hours of the morning. But this timeline definitely gives us an indication that this is it sort of happened bang in the middle. So there are no signs of a force entry which sort of blows the idea of a burglary gone horribly, hor- horribly wrong out of the water. Yeah. Although there was blood all over the place, there were very few signs of a a violent struggle. Otherwise, a furniture sort of slightly moved around. But you'd expect if if there was uh, a big bust up, there'd be things smashed or strewn everywhere. And that simply wasn't the case. And they also found two knives and a hammer at the scene of the crime, um, which was used in in the crime as well and, and that's an odd thing for the, for the killer or killers to to leave behind the weapons that they they used yeah i was gonna say it's not very clever to leave behind the murder weapons you know with fingerprints and everything left there if they wanted to get away with it yeah and uh the other thing they found was a steak knife with a, a peculiar bend in it which presumably came from the force of stabbing something or, or someone. That's quite a force to bend a steak knife. Yeah, yeah. Depends on the quality of the steak knife, really, doesn't it? Cops were stumped by the senseless slaying, but the FBI developed a compelling theory. Sheila Sharp returned from the sleepover at the Seabolts, right next door to cabin 28. She was up bright and early because she'd decided to join the family at their local church service. It was 7.45am. She walked the short journey, literally a few yards, and opened the front door. She found her mother, brother and his friend Dana lying close together, dead in the living room. Sheila, traumatised but spurred immediately into action, ran back to the Seabolts and with their help managed to pull Greg, Ricky and Justin through a bedroom window so they did not have to see the state of the living room. Unable to use the phone, they ran over to the caretaker's cabin, number 25, and made a call to the sheriff's office. The cops arrived approximately 10 minutes later, around 8am. Police entered the crime scene and were overwhelmed by the grotesque nature of what they saw. This was big city-type evil, not the sort of thing which happened in quiet little Plumas County. The victims were not only killed, but mutilated and beaten beyond recognition. As Patrol Commander Rod de Croner told the press, whoever was responsible for the murders was a psychopath. 
In later years, the Plumas County Sheriff's Department would come in for much criticism for their handling of the case, which included neglecting potential DNA evidence and failing to secure a crime scene properly. As the surviving eldest, Sheila provided the police with information about her mother, brother and sister. As well as Tina being physically absent, Sheila reported she had not seen her the night before and assumed she'd been out playing with friends. Also missing from cabin 28 was a shoebox Tina had made for a class project. She had a particular attachment to this shoebox. A red nylon jacket and shoes were gone too. The police devoted 4,000 man-hours and eight investigators to solving the murders, but the mysteries only seemed to deepen. Nothing could be tied together to fit any particular scenario. The lack of clear motive, no sign of forced entry, and Tina's disappearance continued to stump authorities. The groundbreaking Behavioural Science Unit at the FBI pitched in with their rather surprising version of events. John Douglas profiled the potential suspect too, but even he remained cautious as to the likelihood of the scenario's veracity. Douglas also noted that Dana Wingate had had a troubled home life, was in foster care, had been known to commit crimes such as burglary and displayed antisocial behaviour. Wingate also had a penchant for cruelty to animals. Douglas concluded he was therefore likely to know the criminal element in the Plumas County area and be involved in illegal activities. Did he lead the killer or killers to the Sharp's door? Of the crime scene, he stated the killings were an afterthought and not premeditated. He deduced this by the materials and weapons used in the murders, a steak knife, a claw hammer and bindings derived from the home. Douglas, too, did not discount the idea there was a sole perpetrator, but he would have been physically strong and in complete control of the environment. The big twist in the five-page report is that Douglas postulated the key involvement of Tina in the crimes. He also stated Glenna and John Sharp knew their murderer. Glenna was covered in a blanket from her bed. It is an unusual detail for sure, but one that Douglas believed was crucial in interpreting the scene. Why cover up the body? Is there remorse involved? Being respectful of a person who may be upset by the body? Douglas felt the crime was committed by a man involved somehow with the younger Sharp and murdered Glenna, Johnny and Dana, who was never a target, but in the wrong place at the wrong time, out of warped love and sense of duty toward the child. So, Ben, do you know if they ever found Tina? Well, yeah, in a sense. It was just a few years after the the Keddy case that, by complete chance, this, this chap, Robert Pedrini, um, was out looking for old bottles, apparently. Um, and he, he found a human skull in this national park area. And this was just uh, an, an hour or so drive from Keddy. It was in Butte County. And obviously they did all these forensic tests on it. They wanted to know whether it was modern or whether it was prehistoric. And the forensics came back that it was a, a modern skull and it belonged to a child who was between the ages of 11 and 12. So pretty, pretty precise. And um, that it had been in the ground for a year or maybe a couple of years. So it really 
really fit in with the timeline. This was not long after the murders had occurred. Yeah, possibly, possibly a body had been taken there, but but it was just a uh, it was just a skull. So nothing else. Nothing else. Um, and then the plot thickened when uh, police got an anonymous phone call on the thirtieth of May, and. Just a few days later, well, just over a week later, on on the eighth of June, they found a piece of the lower uh, of the lower jaw, and they did dental tests on this, and they were able to match it up to the dental records of Tina. So that's quite a remarkable discovery after all these years. Of, yeah, of nothing, nothing else. But if anything, I mean, it only begs more questions. Really, I mean, why was there? just a, a head there um was this a body that was taken there after the murder or was tina taken somewhere else um, and why was first? she taken and why was she taken was she taken alive and yeah a lot of questions it only begs more questions than than it answers yeah and that's not the only thing they found i mean fast forward a few decades later after the cabin had been demolished in 2004, and I mean even then another decade after that, the police found a hammer in a pond close to where the cabin had been. And this hammer matched the description of one lost by Marty around the time of the murders. So another potential murder weapon then? Yeah, yeah. And they also found a knife, a blade, and they suspect that these were potentially weapons used in the murders it does seem odd that they they didn't find them in in the pond you know it seems like a a a natural thing for for the police to do is to search that kind of body of water nearby where a killer might dump a weapon or or evidence yeah it does seem odd that they missed it however at the time the police had made a few errors when they'd searched the property they didn't seal off the cabin you know they did miss a couple of things so to not find this really doesn't surprise me too much and these weapons well the hammer at least they reckon matched the description of the one marty had lost and actually they did interview marty and Bo. they interviewed them on the 13th of april and both of them gave statements but in the interviews neither of them could really give the police any solid clues and I mean, they immediately fell under suspicion because they were kind of the closest cabin to where the murders had happened. And they, they fit the criminal profile. Yeah, they were both kind of bad seeds and they had been around at the time. But according to them, they hadn't seen anything. And yeah, Marty couldn't really give any kind of consistent evidence as to what had gone on that night. And Bo just kind of used the fact that he was new in town to his advantage and said, well, I don't know anybody, I don't know anything. And eventually the police just had to let them go. They had nothing on them at all. They had nothing, no. And I mean, they both disappeared from the county later on. And I think Marty died a short while after, followed by Bo. So, end of story, or so it would seem. But actually, recently, the county sheriffs have identified as many as six people that are still alive that they think could know something about what happened that night. You know, and they still have two prime suspects, although they're both deceased. So the case continues. 34 years later, the case continues to haunt Plumas County. In the absence of the truth, the murders in Cabin 28 on 11th April 1981 became swamped in wild tales involving drug trafficking, the mafia, hired assassins, sex rings and all sorts of sordid nastiness. 
It began as something very real, but soon turned into stories of the supernatural. Ghosts make perfect metaphors for the haunted past, and soon enough, locals and those brought up in Plumas County and the nearby town of Quincy spread legends of ghostly goings-on. Cabin 28 was dubbed Murder House, and the place considered to be rampant with poltergeist activity. Teens would get their kicks breaking in and relating stories to their pals about hearing spooky noises or seeing spirit manifestations. Scott Lawson, executive director of Plumas County Museum, told a San Francisco Gate reporter in 2001, it's the whodunit of the century around here. It wasn't easy letting go. The Keddie Resort was never the same after that bloody night, and it slowly fell apart. Within the space of a year, folk began to leave, and the owners put it up for sale in 1984. The asking price was $1.8 million, but nobody was interested. Vagrants began to occupy the deserted cabins, and it effectively became a ghost town. There were attempts to rebuild the community, but it was never the same again. In 2004, Cabin 28 was demolished for good, not long after a former owner described to the press her terrifying experiences of living there. She'd wanted the place exercised at one point. For Sheila Sharp and others directly affected, the killings continued to plague their lives. Survivors and relatives of murder victims are presented with a horrible existential conundrum, trying to move on to live with the pain the best they can, but with memories lurking at the back of the mind. Like a wound, it can fester and spread. Learning to cope is a great emotional challenge. Some get by, others fail miserably. The Keddy murders rank as one of California's greatest unsolved crimes and one of the most baffling. The truth may never be known.